Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Pasoor. I'm a consultant doctor and psychiatrist. I work in private practice in Harley Street and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Isabel Heyman, who is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist based at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London in the United Kingdom. Now, Isabel has actually been doing remote working from home and that kind of working for quite a long time, but obviously because of the pandemic right now, um, more people than ever before are having to do it. But she's been interested in this idea from a long time back, long before the pandemic began. So Isabel, my first question to you is the whole of the world is kind of having to get used to remote working. Um, isn't it taken a little bit for granted that's a relatively easy and straightforward thing to do when actually it may take a little bit more planning and a bit more care to really make it work properly? Thank you, Raj. Um, I'm delighted to be able to talk about this today. And your first question is, is a really great one, because I think the short answer to that is actually people shouldn't worry too much about doing it. It's more the anxiety that it does provoke in professionals about whether they can do it than the reality of it. There's no doubt there is a learning curve and we can go through some tips and ideas of, of how to optimise it. But actually, most people I've talked to once they get going with remote working actually are more aware of the advantages than the disadvantages. But hasn't it been controversial in medicine? I mean, psychiatry of all the different branches of medicine, people have kind of um, uh, thought there's a sanctity to the consulting room. There's a kind of skill in terms of the relationship that develops between the psychiatrist and the patient. We're often discussing very delicate things. So that face-to-face -face element to the encounter is thought to be really important. And the other thing is, before the pandemic, there were lots of apps that you could get on your mobile phone, whereby... Um, GPs were offering private GPs video consultations. There was a huge amount of controversy in medicine as to whether a video consultation with a general practitioner could ever really be the same thing as a face-to-face as -face encounter. So there was con controversy about this idea that remote working could really work for medicine long before the pandemic. What, what are your thoughts? Yes, I think all of those are really, really good points. And we have to distinguish, I think, between people's preconceptions and the controversies and then what the actual both experiences and I think anecdote is quite important here because people have different experiences with different patients but also um, there is quite a body of research in terms of both how effective assessments and treatments are when they're carried out remotely and interestingly there's an expanding body of research on those relational aspects so how is the patient relating to their therapist or their clinician? How is the clinician relating to the patient and what's the engagement like? And what I would also say is that there's all sorts of different aspects of remote working. So you mentioned, for example, apps. So there's the whole area of educational materials in mental health available online or remotely. There's the whole area of um, self-help and then there's guided self-help. And then there's the issue of actually having a person, a human, who's either doing a consultation or an assessment or carrying out therapy. And I think all of those things are actually quite different and have their different pros and cons. So you said there actually is an evidence base, so people have been doing some research on this. Tell us a bit about that. So um, I first got involved, actually, uh, because... I've been working in national services for, for quite a long time, but I was also more generally very aware that although we have extremely effective 
treatments in child mental health, many young people weren't accessing the evidence-based treatments that we know work so well. And so actually it was when I was working on obsessive compulsive disorder where the evidence-based treatment alongside SSRI, that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor medication when people need it. The evidence-based treatment is a psychological therapy, cognitive behaviour therapy, and we started experimenting with delivering that over the telephone in those days instead of doing it face-to-face. -face. And jumping to the result, um, the randomised controlled trial that we did showed that actually the same treatment exposure with response prevention uh, CBT worked just as well over the phone um, as it does face to face and actually interestingly it was just as acceptable and satisfactory to both clinicians and patients um, and I should say actually um, particularly teenagers actually often prefer working on the phone or online they're very used to it um, it can fit in better with their routine. They don't have to travel and miss so much time at school or, or out of their normal life. It can be um, done privately in their bedroom and you do have to you know, ensure that people have got a private space at home. You can have separate conversations with the child uh, and the parent. So the, all of this came out of our research that it was not only effective um, but acceptable. And there have been many, many other research trials in a whole range of different conditions in adults and in children really demonstrating um, good efficacy. So what you're telling me is the evidence base is that there is no difference really for in, in many situations about whether a doctor or a psychiatrist encounters the patient face to face or does the same work um, remotely via, via electronic devices. That really does seem to be the case, Raj, and you know, there's a lot of resistance um, to people accepting that because I, I think there's, you know, there's, there's quite a sort of iconic status associated with that special, you know, in the room with your doctor aspect of mental health. But I think what we're increasingly realising, it's the contents of what you do in those therapy sessions that's really important um, for outcome, which isn't to say, of course, that the relationship isn't important, but we increasingly are seeing that the relationship doesn't particularly suffer by being um, remote either. And I think what I would add, um, you know, because I now work in a general hospital setting, um, where psychiatrists and psychologists and other mental health workers are just one part of the workforce. I think the mental health workforce is particularly skilled at engaging people remotely. I think there was a lovely quote, um, uh, we can be remote but not distant. So I think you can be really present for your patient, you can be engaging, you can be accessible, you can be responsive and flexible. And I think um, as mental health professionals, we can help our non-mental health clinician colleagues a lot with learning how to do this work. Does it make a difference whether we're discussing a phone call with audio only or doing it via Skype, so it's audio and video, or doing it via a computer or doing it via a mobile phone? Do any of these parameters make any difference? 
Yes, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, again, there has been some research on this. Um, Sophie Scott, for example, at UCL, has done a lot of work on um, the subtleties and nuances of, of verbal and voice recognition. As you probably know, there's been a lot of work on face recognition and recognition of emotions and expression, and how much do you lose by not having those visual cues. And I think, um, you know, to sum up a complicated area of neuroscience research, I think um, verbal and vocal recognition is much more subtle and sophisticated than, than we realise. You do lose something, of course, by not having a subtle visual cue. So, for example, recently, um, I thought a teenager I was seeing had started to cry, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, are you, are you crying? And she said, oh, no, I've just got... I'm just rubbing my eye. And so, you know, <laughs> something like that, where you would have picked up the emotional tone a bit more easily in the room and also the physical cues um, I misinterpreted. But then there's positives as well, um, where, you know, actually the, sometimes seeing people can be really helpful. I had a very, um, quite a difficult appointment with a very hyperactive child and I've done a few of those now where I've learned that actually you know the child will be off screen a lot of the time so actually it probably doesn't make that much difference if you're doing a, a voice or a, um, uh, a visual call but actually I learned a lot by the fact that the child was zooming around the room and doing other things rather than sitting in front of a screen. So it seems to me that one of the things you're saying practically we should do is make, ask more clarifying questions before jumping to assumptions about emotional state or what they may mean if we're doing uh, remote electronic working. So you, you should check uh, the impression that you've got a little bit more than you might do uh, in a face-to-face -face consultation. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I, I think that is a really important point, and that does take a little bit of practice, even for very practical things like judging whether you're getting tired yourself or whether your patient is, is getting tired. So um, you might actually actively need to ask, you know, would you like a, a short break now or, you know, would you like to stretch and stand up? So I think um, whereas you might naturally in the room just say, we'll take a two-minute break now you may need to actually verbalize that and similarly with emotions you know has that made you feel sad um yes i think that is really important um isn't there a sense in which um, that's a bit clunky in that you have to actually suggest a break where sometimes in a face-to-face -face consultation a natural break occurs so you say can i get you a cup of tea or can i get you a, a glass of water so a natural break tends to occur that way so isn't it in, in, in remote working there's a sense of which it's slightly more clunky it's slightly more you have to say let's take a break which is slightly more clunky than can i get you a cup of tea yes um I think one can't deny that, but I also think we tend to worry too much about the slickness and smoothness. I think we there's a, a sort of strong sense of humanity that emerges when, with our patients, we're working out the rules and the technology together. So, of course, while sometimes an appointment might not be quite as slick, I don't think, I think it takes some practice not to, to worry about that, but I think it's, it's very normal to say, oh gosh, you know, I got that wrong there because I didn't notice you'd um, 
you know, fallen asleep or whatever that happened. So, you know, I think that there's swings and roundabouts, but I, I think being open and communicative is the key, whatever the setting for a session, really. So in terms of the resistance of professionals to remote working, the notion of the theatre of the consultation, uh, people have to wait for you in a waiting room. There's a theatrical element um, which reinforces the power and authority of the clinician. Um, is that one of the things that's going on, that we're afraid we're going to lose all of that uh, when you're just like a, a voice um, or a face? Uh, it, it challenges some of the things that we've taken for granted that we rely on a bit, the, the kudos of the institution, that a patient coming to see you arrives at the, the famous Great Ormond Street Hospital, and that carries a certain gravitas with it, which is an important part of the theatre of the consultation. You lose all of that when you go with remote working. I think that might be the case, you know, with the initial meeting um, online. But I, I would say again, Raj, that I, I think it's the, you know, the, the robustness, the gravitas, the, the authenticity, if you like, comes from the content of what you're saying to your patient. And I think, you know, that's where I would encourage people to remember that they know all the rules for doing a good um, assessment or a good therapeutic session, you know, to plan ahead of what you're going to do to when you meet the family, set an agenda for what you want to cover. Um, at the end of the session, if, you, if it's a treatment session and they need some notes for what to take away to make sure you've both got things noted down, if you want to follow up with an email um, to the family with the notes of things to practice. So all of those structures that lead to good outcomes and effective clinical interactions, I think are the same, really. So, of course, I agree, you know, and, and actually one of the things I was thinking about, of course, if you're working from home, your patients can see into your house. So it is slightly worth thinking about what you've got around and got in the background and that the lighting is, is good. You might want to put um, a backdrop a neutral backdrop up rather than share your home environment and I think that's fine um, but I don't think a great deal is lost. Um, what about the notion that um, when a patient comes to see me in, in my consulting room I've controlled the environment so I know that we're not going to get interrupted um, and, and the door is closed and there's privacy. Um, th don't you have to kind of replicate that a little bit more carefully in remote working? You have to specify to the patient or the client or whoever you're dealing with what the environment is they're going to be in. You have to say to them, let's be in a private space where no one can overhear you and where you're not going to get interrupted, etc. etc. You've got to try and control and recreate the environment at the other end as opposed to just leaving it to them because they may they may get interrupted or they may not quite understand what the demands are in terms of creating the private space necessary for the consultation. Yes, that's really important. Um, I'm really glad you raised that. So I think there's some things to do um, ahead of of setting up remote working um, with patients for the first time, which include those aspects. So you need to be very clear with them that, first of all, you're using a secure um, platform, that it's been approved. Um, if you want, you can use passwords for people to, to access the call. And then those practical things you've just mentioned, that um, they need to have a private and quiet space. And of course, you know, it, 
it's very important to think of less advantaged um, families where it may be a complete impossibility to have a quiet space or, or an own room or be able to shut a door. So there's some real challenges in some settings in, in working online and, and that is something not to forget. And of course, you know, the availability of, of technology, not everybody has got um, a smartphone or a, or a good computer, although I, I think well into the 90% of, of households are online these days, but it, it still can be quite a, an underprivileged environment that you're trying to, to work in or a chaotic environment. And then the other things to check, of course, um, ideally, is that um, I try to have a, a pre-call, um, just a telephone call, or if you're lucky enough to have a secretary, ask your secretary to call, to make sure that the family have got the software installed that you're planning to use, um, if possible to even have a quick test call to make sure sound works and, and vision works. So I think all of those practical aspects and they do scare clinicians, actually, trying to, to get them working. But it's worth checking all those ahead of time. Working with teenagers is fantastic because they are absolutely brilliant at getting all the technology working. So, um, And one more thing, actually, important thing. Um, I was doing a session um, with a young person, actually, just last week. And they asked me, um, are you on your own? Have you got anybody else in the room? And actually, that took me by surprise. And it's made me um, make sure that I reassure people that they have confidentiality on my end. I haven't got, you know, my friends and family pottering around in the background. It's very important. So there are a series of assumptions um, that we take a little bit for granted when we've set up the consultation uh, remotely, as opposed to when people come to your consulting room, they can see there's no one else in the room. Exactly. Um, so, so you may have to be a bit clunky about being aware of all the assumptions you just take for granted and clarifying them um, directly with the patient before the consultation begins. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on the fact that you, it's no accident, some people would say, that you're a fan of the electronic way of working because you're coming from a particular um part of psychiatry, it sounds like, with the CBT approach, the cognitive behavioral therapy approach, which says that if people follow instructions and perform actions, then they will get better. Whereas the more Freudian psychoanalytic branch of psychiatry um, is not about that kind of content. It's about the relationship that develops uh, between the doctor and the client. So is it not the case that the models that you use over mental health lend themselves to electronic working, whereas other models may not do so quite so easily. Yes, I, I think that might well be the case. Um, and I think the cognitive behavioural model and evidence-based assessment um, approaches have been much better evaluated remotely. Actually, I... I it's a good question because I don't know if there's been research on more interpretative therapy um, delivered remotely or not. Um, so I, I think in the end, the only way to know is to evaluate it both, you know, quantitatively and qualitatively. But I think I would come back again to um, the evidence that when people have looked specifically at relational and interactional aspects, they don't seem to be too impaired, if at all, 
using remote working and I don't know whether that would apply to a more analytic um, relationship or not. Well, in fact, actually, there is another bit of indirect evidence about this comes from another area, which is um, when people began writing comp computer programs back in the 60s to replicate what they thought therapists did. Uh, there was a famous program that basically just took what you said and kind of posed a question. So you said something like, uh, my boyfriend's left me. And uh, the, the program would say, and how do you feel about that? You know what I mean? It, it wasn't yeah. that difficult to construct a program that no. came up with questions like that, which was a more, as you know, slightly more, not, not a CBT type approach. Um, uh, what was interesting was that the public um, believed that they weren't dealing with a computer program. They believed they were dealing with a real therapist right. um, and found it very hard to get rid of when the, the, the experimenter said, no, 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 it's a computer program. People still continue to refuse to believe that. So what's quite interesting about that is that, you know, going to what you're saying is that even if you go with the more psychoanalytic side, actually, it's often maybe easier to replicate that electronically than, mm. than, than other things. So, yeah, I think I think what you're saying is that we're wedded to the idea there's some mysterious X factor to do with our relationships with our patients. Um, and we, we remote working suggests that actually you can replicate the, the, the stuff that helps people get better. Uh, through electronics and remote working and you don't need to actually meet them face to face. Yes and, and I think you know what I would add Raj is that there's also some very practical positives of, of working online. I mean I'm not trying to make out that it's the you know the, the best thing since sliced bread but I do think that the the rate at which we've been accelerated into being comfortable with remote working because of the corona uh, crisis that will hopefully um, hopefully carry on. So, you know, they're very, very obvious things, and I think I've mentioned some of them, but, you know, the accessibility and the, the flexibility. But there's also some intrinsic things about the treatment. So you can, for example, you know, really look at crunch points in the psychopathology or the symptoms. So, for example, you know, I was... Um, working with a young person with obsessive compulsive disorder who had particular issues about going into the bathroom and actually it was much more one particular bathroom in their home and actually we could pick up the phone and go together into the bathroom and do that and you know so that was a very huge benefit similarly somebody one of my team was telling me you know they were working with somebody where meal times were a particular issue so actually they arranged to do a therapy session in a mealtime and then could work live with, and this was actually more of a family therapy um, intervention rather than a cognitive behavioural intervention. They could actually work live at that mealtime moment. So I think, um, you know, it's right to look at all the challenges and the stresses that arise, but I think we should also look at, at some of the, the positives. The other thing, actually, I found is I've gotten far more fathers um, to join in family sessions <laughs> and therapy sessions. I mean, maybe they are trapped at home at the moment, but also, actually, members of my team have said, because um, we've been working remotely for many years, they said that actually fathers are much happier often to join online um, in a break in their day rather than take a couple of hours out and come down to clinic. And I've even, again, in the last couple of weeks, been able to work with a father who was actually resident in the United States. He was able to join 
a session with the mother and child in, in the UK. So there's surprising, you know, it surprised me some of the things we've been able to do. Are there any other pra any other practical examples you can give us of how you might have conducted an assessment or a therapy session differently by doing it online as opposed to face to face? Any other practical examples from consultations you've had, for example? Yes. Um, so a couple of things uh, to mention, really. Um, you know, it's it's often very very important in child mental health to make sure you can interview or spend some time with the young person on their own and when you set up a family assessment you've got the whole family there lined up on the sofa with the child so we've had to think quite creatively about how to do that and again it does depend on the setup at home but sometimes we've arranged for another team member perhaps one of the clinical psychologists to set up, we start all together with me, the psychologist, the parents, the young person, and then after 15 minutes, the psychologist puts in a separate call to the young person who then may go off to their room um, with their smartphone to do um, a private interview. Then we take a break. Sometimes the professionals get back together um, and pull the information. So I might have been interviewing the parents about development or other things while the child interview has been going on. We can pull things together um, and then feed back. Um, the other thing um, we've been doing really successfully um, is involving sometimes our referrers um, in the discussions or the feedback or even if the families would like it, the whole assessment. So again, sometimes if we had a referral from Cornwall, um, the family doctor would very much have liked to come but couldn't spend the time so we've been able to link them in to some remote assessments we sometimes i see a lot of children with combinations of physical and mental health symptoms or medically unexplained symptoms so for example we've recently been able to do an appointment where we had the neurologist this was a child with non-epileptic seizures we had the neurologist also join the assessment and sometimes it would be you know take many weeks to set up a, a multidisciplinary face-to-face -face meeting like that but we did it very quickly and easily on zoom so in other words there's a networking opportunity that electronic uh, communication um, presents and um, it's something in terms of the longer term changes that, that could impact the way that we work because before the notion of having to place a call to another doctor while the patient was in the room was something that um, we tended not to do uh, so easily. So, so there's more networking that's possible as a result of this. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and I think, you know, not just amongst health professionals, but particularly working with children, we work very closely with schools. Um, we often want to chat to a teacher and it can take ages to find a time that's convenient for the teacher to come up to the clinic or for us to go to the school. But again, a teacher dropping in for 15 minutes on Zoom in a break can work extremely well. Um, you know, sometimes the child's network very closely involves other family members like grandparents who are living remotely. They may be, you know, closely involved and important people. They can link in social services um, could link in so I think it really does open up um, a lot of creative and actually you know very productive um, possibilities for the child and family
Um, you mentioned um, in some of the notes that you sent me that there's some ongoing uh, research into electronic or remote working. You mentioned um, Lucy Booth. Tell me a bit about that. Yes. So Lucy, <laughs> I don't know if many people will remember, but Lucy was a character in the Peanuts um, cartoon who set up a, a booth as a psychiatrist. She was a psychiatrist in her spare time. And yes. uh, she set up a booth saying, the psychiatrist is in, drop in and see me. So that was our inspiration, um, because at Great Ormond Street, many of our patients um, with complicated and quite difficult physical conditions were finding it a bit tricky to access um, emotional and behavioural support. So we set up um, a drop-in booth to offer brief assessments and interventions and the interventions are being delivered almost entirely um, remotely um, over the telephone and they're brief um, evidence-based uh, treatments but the other thing I would say is that um, there's a huge potential for doing online and um, remote assessments and I would really want to mention um, Professor Robert Goodman here who I think has spent a lifetime um, thinking about how do we get better assessment and better treatment to more children. And he's developed a wonderful um, online diagnostic assessment called the Development and Wellbeing Assessment. And so we use that in the Lucy booth um, to carry out the initial assessment. And how it works is that the parents and the child, if they're older than 11, get a confidential personalised login and at home, in their own time, complete um, some questionnaires about the child's emotions and behaviour. And then this is analysed um, to produce diagnoses. And we also use this in the clinic, actually, routinely. But it's a very um, accurate and economic way. It doesn't completely replace um, a human being, but it's a fantastic adjunct to then, um, you know, beginning work with a with a child because you've got this very detailed diagnostic assessment that's been very well validated in huge populations to work from. And there were some other ones that you mentioned. A thing called Mice Mental Health Interventions for Children with Epilepsy. Yes, this is a study that arose from the findings that that young people with neurological conditions in general um, have very high rates of mental health need. And in children with complex epilepsy, this can be 50 or 60% of children will um, have a mental health diagnosis. The very common things usually, anxiety, depression, um, hyperactivity, autism. And what we were finding is that almost their physical health problem overshadowed their mental health needs and often they haven't had good assessments or their mental health needs haven't been detected or treated and actually these were causing a lot of trouble to them and their families in day-to-day -day life. So we initially did some pilot work um, using in fact the DORBA, the online development and wellbeing assessment, um, to assess children attending epilepsy clinics and found that after we'd um, assessed them, we could then offer short, uh, again, remote interventions for these common conditions. 
And we've now got um, NIHR funding to do a randomized controlled trial to actually look at how effective it is to pick up the mental health needs of children in this way, attending epilepsy clinics, and to offer these brief um, interventions. And we're comparing that to what they just normally get in these settings. And what about the final one that you mentioned, um, online remote behavioural treatment for tics or ORBIT? Yeah. Um, and actually, just coming back to, to my sorry, because I did want to I did want to mention um, Ros Shaffron, Professor Ros Shaffron, who's the um, person really I work very closely with on the research side, who who's the principal investigator with me on both the Lucy uh, project and the Mice project, because the orbit. Um, study comes from work with David Matash Coles, who's another huge inspiration to me and worked on the original OCD telephone studies. But ORBIT is a trial looking at behavioural treatment for tick disorders, so tick and Tourette's syndrome. And this is um, in collaboration with Professor Chris Hollis from Nottingham and David Matash Coles is now at the Karolinska in, in Sweden. And again, it's translating the current best treatment, um, behavioural treatment for tics, which is a behavioural sessional treatment. This has been translated into an online package and we have been delivering that um, to children who have been randomised to either the active tick treatment or just an educational package. And we haven't analysed um, the results fully yet, but again, it's been... Um, there's been very enthusiastic uptake and it has been um, already evaluated in Sweden in the Swedish version. So it looks like a very promising way of delivering a treatment which isn't very widely available in clinics to more children with ticks. But what, what is the behavioural treatment for the tick though? Sorry, for people who would, would yeah. not know what that is. So there's two um, effective treatments. One is called habit reversal training, which is teaching um, the child to design and implement what we call a competing response to the tick. So there's a series of techniques and strategies that the child can learn. There's another technique called um, exposure with response prevention, which is working with the premonitory urge of the tick and helping the child recognize this and learn to tolerate it and then resist ticking. So it's, it's actually a very old treatment that's been around for a long time. Um, but what we found is that actually teaching these quite difficult and nuanced techniques to children gives an enormous sense of control. It's not a panacea, it doesn't eliminate ticks, but actually it can really help uh, children reduce the intensity and severity and impact of their ticks and, and gain a great deal of control. And one can do it um, with an online package, which importantly actually also has um, some therapist input by email. So um, that is an important point when we were talking about guided uh, self-help and self-help. You get much greater um, efficacy and better outcomes with even a tiny bit of therapist input. So we're running out of time a little bit, but one um, final um, thought I want to put to you is that you um, work at a very august and famous institution, um, Great Ormond Street, 
uh, hospital for, for children. And there's a sense in which the more traditional, prestigious, academic um, institutions in medicine have been somewhat slow to embrace electronics and remote working. Um, on the other hand, there's a little bit of a Wild West out there in, in Appland um, and in, on the web in terms of a lot of people who aren't properly credentialed, um, don't know really what they're doing. Um, they're kind of like snake oil salesmen selling the idea that you can get treatment electronically. So isn't there a problem, which is although I, I understand from what you're telling me that you can get proper credential treatment electronically um, via um, remote working, um, but with properly credentialed people, that there's a little bit of a Wild West that can develop quite easily because people don't end up coming to Great Ormond Street. There's a protection in, in, in the bricks and mortar that when you walk in through the door, um, you, you are meeting people of a certain standard. Um, if you're on the web just Googling treatment for something, um, anything could happen. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yes. So it comes back, we've, we've talked wide-rangingly, haven't we, about lots of different things, you know, getting education and information online, accessing self-help apps, guided self-help, and then the replacement for face-to-face -face therapy with a qualified therapist. And there's scope for, you know, poor quality in all of those areas. And I definitely agree with you that the, you know, the online world is a minefield. And I think it's something actually that the college, um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists has been tremendous at in collating, um, you know, authoritative resources and sites. And I would particularly mention uh, MindEd, which is, you know, the educational site where there's really good quality information and pointers towards um, treatments that have been validated. Also, in fact, um, Robert Goodman has a wonderful website called Youth in Mind um, with Help Finder area, where again, he highlights, he has particularly focused on books that have all been evaluated. So I think there's definitely work to be done um, in collating and really, you know, recommending a smaller number of specific materials to, to our population of patients um, and families. But I think, um, you know, what I'd come back to is that particularly guided self-help uh, for the right person at the right time can be a really hugely effective intervention. And particularly given the waiting list and poor access that there can be in some parts of the country to child and adolescent mental health services. I think this, you know, is an absolutely fantastic option, um, not instead of, but perhaps while you're waiting for your appointment or to be used at an earlier stage um, in, in, the, in the difficulty. So while we're in the midst of a pandemic, what you're, you seem to be saying is that this is, this is an opportunity, in fact, not to deliver less treatment because we can't meet people face to face, but using electronics to deliver just as much, if not more treatment, if we embrace the whole remote working idea. I really, really do think so. And I've thought about it particularly, actually, because I think some of us in psychiatry, you know, we're not exactly on the front line in the, the COVID crisis. And I think I've, I've seen amongst colleagues a certain amount of almost guilt about that. You know, what should we be doing? We're not rushing around saving lives. But actually, there's two things to say. I think our time will come. I think there will be a lot of fallout, um, you know, from the stresses and strains, the impact on schools, the economic impact 
of, of the corona crisis. So I think we will be really needed later. But I think, as you've just said, even more immediately, we can carry on working with our population of patients as usual, but really business as usual. And, you know, there's some specific examples where with our patients with physical and mental health symptoms, we may actually be keeping them out of hospital um, and out of A&E by carrying on with our treatment. But I think absolutely, I think um, we can be really busy, really effective. We've got a lot of our families sitting at home at the moment, um, accessible, happy to work with us. So actually it's an opportunity to uh, you know get on with our wait lists if we've, we've got them, meet more people and get work done. But I get the feeling that you believe that after the pandemic is over, um, even many years from now, there's a sense in which this is a turning point as an opportunity to be seized for psychiatrists to um, to seize the opportunity of, of remote working a bit more, that it becomes a bit more, more integrated into everyday practice, even when we're not at a time of, of, of pandemic crisis. I, I do think so, Raj, and I suspect there's many people out there already doing it. And, and certainly if you look at places around the world like Australia, you know, they've been doing remote um, health care, haven't they, for, for many, many decades. And I suspect around the country there's more of it going on than we realise. So I, but I absolutely think um, that we should really look at the positive things that come out of this, you know, and be aware of, of the negatives, particularly not assuming that all families around the country um, can easily, you know, work from home and access the technology. But I think, I think the positives really do far outweigh the negatives. So I really hope that this will be a springboard for more creative remote working in the future. Great. Uh, so, Isabel Heyman, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity.